Do you know where we get the word testicles? It shares the same root as biblical words like testify, testimony, testament. What is the body of a man meant to testify to? It's meant to testify to the eternal fatherhood of God. Our bodies are revealing a secret riddle at the center of creation. Sex is not about sex. It's about much, much more. Friends, welcome back. I'm excited to take you into this next episode of the Become Good Soil podcast. And we're going deep because, as you know, if you've traveled with us for many miles, this reaches the many to find the few. It's all about the few. I'm here today with my friend, Christopher West. He's the like-hearted. He's among the few. Christopher is one of the world's most recognized teachers of John Paul II's revolutionary theology of the body, which was published originally in 1979. A very compelling book, Our Bodies Tell God's Story. Friends, this conversation is not for the faint of heart. Before we dive in, I want to turn to the sacred words from C.S. Lewis, one of the modern-day fathers of our faith, borrowed from his book, Mere Christianity, where he touches on the theology of the body through the narrow gate of the mystery of marriage. Let's dive in. The Christian idea of marriage is based on Christ's words that a man and wife are to be regarded as a single organism, for that is what the words one flesh would be in modern English. And the Christians believe that when he said this, he was not expressing a sentiment, but stating a fact, just as one is stating a fact when one says that a lock and its key are one mechanism, or that a violin and a bow are one musical instrument. The inventor of the human machine was telling us that its two halves, the male and the female, were made to be combined together in pairs, not simply on the sexual level, but totally combined. Christopher, welcome to this episode, this podcast. It's been a real desire of mine to sit down with you, um, heart to heart, brother to brother. Um, and I know that this is the kind of conversation that I walk away from afterwards going, I wish I recorded that because we have like-hearted allies around the globe that would yeah. have loved to benefit from that personal connection. So I just felt like let's let's be authentic, let's take the risk, and let's invite other like-hearted pilgrims into this journey. So thanks for joining me. Absolutely. My joy. I've been following what you guys have been doing for a long time. It's been a rich, rich blessing in my life. I'm certainly happy to, to give back. So Christopher, I want to assume that our audience knows very little about theology of the body. They know very little about um, who who is Pope John Paul II and how many, yeah. why are there so many popes named John or Paul? Right? <laughs> so I just want to start with the basics of help us, help our friends know who you are and how it led you into your vocation. Yeah, sure. Well, first I can answer the question, why are there so many popes named John or Paul? 
or John Paul. There are actually 23 named John. There are six named Paul, and there are two named John Paul. Well, <laughs> back to the original apostles, John and Paul. You know, it's as it's as simple as that. But um, yeah, I was raised a Catholic in the. I was born in the late 60s, 69. Raised in the Catholic Church in the 70s and 80s, and I, I left the church as a teenager, and came back largely through the influence of evangelical Christians who told me I could have a personal relationship with Jesus. And in my early 20s, that I really did. I had an encounter with the risen Christ that rocked my world and changed my life. I was raised on what you might call the starvation diet gospel. Mm, I've never... that, I mean, now, this is not all Catholics. These are stereotypes, but where do stereotypes come from? They come from the fact that, you know, in large measure, this stuff happens. Uh, the basic message hovering in the air in Catholic school when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s was your desires are bad. They're only going to get you in trouble. Mm -hmm. You need to repress all that and follow all these rules and you'll be a good upstanding Christian citizen. That's what I call the starvation diet gospel. So I became a quick convert in my teenage years to what I call the fast food gospel, which is the secular culture's promise of immediate gratification for the hunger. And I don't know about you, but I'm a hungry guy. I have always felt this passion, this search, this quest, this ache, this hunger for something. And if the only two choices are the starvation approach or the fast food approach, I'm going for the chicken nuggets. Yes, of course. Because I'm hungry. Right. And I don't want anybody to lie to me. Don't lie to me. Those chicken nuggets taste good going down. Mm. But the problem is, you know, I don't know if you've seen that documentary, uh, Supersize Me. Yes, I have. Oh, right. yes. The guy eats McDonald's breakfast, lunch and dinner for 30 days straight to see what would happen to him. <laughs> uh, stupid idea. I could tell you what's going to happen to you. But anyway, <laughs> at, at the end of this movie, he's he's literally dying. The doctor tells him your body is shutting down from all the grease and the sodium. Wow. That is a picture of my inner life, spiritually speaking, in my college years. I was shutting down. I was dying inside from all the grease and the sodium that I was consuming, so to speak. And I will, I'll never forget it, Morgan. I was 19 years old. I'm falling on my knees in a college dorm. This is 1988. And I am begging God, God, if you exist, I didn't, I didn't have faith at the time. I'm just throwing something out there like, God, if you exist, you better show me why you gave me all these desires because they're getting me and everybody I know into a hell of a lot of trouble. What is your plan? Do you have a plan? And having been raised a Catholic, you know, I, I had some good formation, like I believed the Bible was the word of God, at least I had been told that. So I thought, okay, if this is God's word, he's got to have some answers in here. From 1988 to 1993, I was studying the scripture, trying to understand God. This is my question. Why did you make us male and female? What is this erotic desire all about? Because that's the hunger that really got me in trouble. And I came to see over these three to four years of studying the word of God, just asking for inspiration, I came to see what I would now call the spousal vision of the Bible. 
that the Bible begins with the marriage in an earthly paradise. And throughout the Old Testament, the prophets speak of God's love for his people as the love of a husband for his bride. In the New Testament, the eternal bridegroom is literally embodied when the word is made flesh. Skip to the end of the story. The book of Revelation describes heaven as a wedding, uh, an eternal marriage between Christ and the church. And now when you look at the bookends, you get the key that unlocks the whole story. Here's the whole Bible in five words. God wants to marry us. Mm. And he wanted that eternal marital plan to be so plain to us that he chiseled an image of it right in our bodies. This is what the Apostle Paul is telling us in Ephesians chapter 5 when he says, for this reason, here he's just quoting Genesis, right? For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife. The two will become one flesh. And then he says, this is a profound mystery. And I love the Greek. It has a better ring to it. Paul says, actually, this is a mega mystery. Mm. This is a mega mystery, and it refers to Christ and the church. Christopher, I'd love to stop right there and just sit, sit in these big ideas for a bit and linger, because I love what you're saying. You started out with curiosity. You started with questions. These questions, like why did God make us male and female? And I'm experiencing this erotic desire. What is this all about? the questions of desire. It's been said, desire reveals design and design reveals destiny. And yet many men don't ever feel or regularly experience sexual desire as something nudging them toward recovering their destiny. What I'm hearing you say is that over time, you've discovered this mega mystery, this sacred invitation into desire actually was meant to be the compass pointing us to this profound intimacy in and with God. So can you say more? Christ left his father in heaven. He left the home of his mother on earth to give up his body for his bride so that we, the bride of Christ, might become one flesh with him. This is what the incarnation is all about. Christ wants to be one in the flesh with us. This is what scripture calls the marriage of the lamb. So. Anyway, I'm trying to make a long story short here. I was studying this. I was reading this in scripture. It was setting me on fire. And I was going to Christians that I trusted and believed were wiser than I. And I'm saying, this is what I'm reading in scripture. This is what I'm hearing in my heart. What do you think? And a lot of people started looking at me like I had horns coming out of my head. Like, that, that, that sounds like you're just thinking too much about the body and sex. What does that have to do with our faith? And I'm thinking, what does that have to do with our faith? Well, isn't the incarnation all about Christ taking on flesh? Didn't he come as a bridegroom? But I wasn't getting much affirmation, sadly, yes. until, I'll never forget the day, Morgan. It was my sister's 20th birthday, September 26th, 1993. And uh, she had invited a friend over who was a student of theology, like had some theology degrees. And I started asking her some questions. I was peppering her like, here's what I'm hearing in the scripture as I read and study scripture. What do you think? And these were the first words out of her mouth. Oh, you must have read John Paul II's Theology of the Body. I said, no, no, no. What's that? She said, well, you haven't read it? Gosh, you sound just like the Pope. 
said, <laughs> wait, that's a quote right there. I was like, what are you, the Pope, the Polish guy whose Pope had been Pope since I was a little kid talks about sex like this, understands the Bible like this. She said, oh yeah, you're going to love this. You got to read this. So she told me where I could order it. And I ordered these four little books the next day, which were a collection of these lectures that he had given called Theology of the Body. He gave 129 lectures between 1979 and 1984. It was really a Bible study. It's what it was. And he went right from Genesis to Revelation, unpacking all of these scripture verses that I had been studying for the last few years on my own. And he confirmed everything that I was learning. And of course, he took me to a whole new level of understanding it. And Morgan, I really felt I was, what, 20, 24 years old at the time. And reading this Bible study of this pope, I remember thinking I had discovered something as big as the cure for the world's cancer. Wow. And, and, and I knew then I would spend the rest of my life studying this biblical vision and sharing it with anyone who would listen. And it's taken me around the world, uh, across denominational lines. Um, and it, it's, I think I have the greatest job in the world because I, I learned from him, Christianity is not a starvation diet. It's an invitation to a wedding feast. Mm. And my mission is just to invite hungry people to the feast. Mm. Jesus says, go out into the main streets and invite everyone to the wedding feast. And that's, that's what I've been doing for the last 25, 20, however, what year are we in? 20, it's been 27 years since I first discovered it. Amazing. Amazing. So Christopher, as I listen to you, I'm, I'm struck by a couple of things. So for our audience out there that probably have not read the Theology of the Body and anything by the Pope, like I have not read Theology of the Body, what we're talking about today is actually a different book. It's a book that you wrote. Right. And the book is called Our Body Tells God's Story. And I think the best way I could describe it for my friends out there is Eugene Peterson was a pastor to a very small, normal church. And they didn't understand the Bible. It, right. In other words, it wasn't communicating life. It wasn't... It wasn't producing the life in their lives that it, wasn't it was to their hearts. Exactly. Now, Eugene, he was ablaze with the life of God that spoke through the scriptures. So he said, I'm not reaching the people. And so over time, he began to translate the book um, verse by verse and story by story to help connect with the hearts of the people. And, and, and Christopher, I think if I could just name it succinctly is that's what you've done to John Paul II's Theology of the Body. You've taken a, a complex and rather inaccessible document to, to us average folks, right. and you've made it accessible on the level of the heart. And you've really done what I would name as a modern translation. And when I read it, I, I have to tell you, I, I was likewise, there was something validating in my soul, mm -hmm. something that you were naming that had yet to be fully named to me of the dignity of this overarching story of yeah. God using marriage, the covenant, the wedding feast, and the process of maturing in marriage into its ultimate fulfillment um, as the metaphor for our relationship with him. And so 
Um, I'm, I was really moved by that. And what I what I want to to ask, what I want to start with is, um, what's gone wrong? Why is it a train wreck? Like you yeah. would think, this would be rather simple, right? Yeah. Like the same way we've got ten commandments, and Moses laid them out as these are guidelines for life, right. and you shouldn't have to be told that it's it's not going to give you life to murder somebody. But I promise you, you won't get life from that. So don't murder someone in order you might have life. Um, it's, it, it seems rather simple to take Genesis at face value and say we're yep. created in the image of God, male and female, and we were meant for, for this, this intimacy. Um, why is it a train wreck? Yeah. Well, here we have to, for a moment anyway, we have to think with the mind of the enemy. See, if the union of man and woman is exactly what scripture says it is. And guess what? It is exactly what scripture says it is. It's a mega mystery that reveals the mystery of Christ's love for the church. That's what I mean by entitling the book, Our Bodies Tell God's Story. What is God's story? It's the story of his covenant love. And that covenant love is a marital covenant, right? This is God wants to marry us. And that eternal marital plan has literally been chiseled by God in our bodies as male and female. It's the main sign God has given us here on planet Earth to point us to these heavenly realities, this heavenly destiny we have. And this is why the enemy hates with all his diabolic fury. He hates God's plan for man and woman. He hates God's plan for marital union. He hates God's plan for the family. He hates God's plan for gender and sexuality. Why? Because our bodies tell God's story. He wants to scramble that language. Here's another way to put it. I, I'm always looking for the metaphors, the analogies that, that, that connect us with these truths. I like to say, God gave us erotic desire in the beginning, and remember, they were naked and felt no shame. Why were they naked without shame? Because they experienced erotic desire as God created it to be. How did God create erotic desire to be? As the desire to love in his image and likeness. If we want to use these Greek words, eros and agape, we can say that in the beginning, they were naked without shame because Eros expressed agape. And here's my analogy. God gave us erotic desire in the beginning to be like the fuel of a rocket that has the power to launch us to the stars, to our eternal destiny, which is the marriage of the Lamb. But there's an enemy who doesn't want us to reach the stars. And his goal is to invert our rocket engines. What happens if you launch a rocket with inverted engines? This is why, and our experience confirms it, we go out into the world looking for love, looking for happiness, looking for fulfillment. But so often our attempts at happiness and joy and fulfillment and love, they backfire on us. And the reason they backfire on us is because we're all born into this world with inverted rocket engines. Here's the good news of the gospel. Christ came into the world not to condemn those with inverted rocket engines, 
he came into the world to redirect our rocket engines to the stars. See, Christianity is, is so often wrongly understood as salvation from the body. It is not salvation from the body. Christ took on a body, died in a body, rose bodily, ascended into the glory of the Trinity bodily, not to save us from our bodies, but to save our bodies. Romans 8, Paul says it. Our faith is faith in the redemption of our bodies. This means sexuality itself gets redirected, reoriented towards that ultimate destiny, which is the marriage of the Lamb. You know, all the devil can do here, Morgan, is mock. And the enemy knows that sexuality and sexual orientation is, is oriented towards the infinite, right? But his goal, all he can do is take God's clay, that's God's clay, right? The devil doesn't have his own clay. Mm-hmm. All God can, all the enemy can do is take God's clay and <clears throat> twist it up. So God created human sexuality as something that is oriented towards the infinite. The enemy gets his hands on that clay, twists it up, and he says, no, there is an infinite number of sexual orientations, right? He's confusing the message. We live in a world today of rampant gender confusion and an infinite number of sexual orientations. The biblical truth of gender is that gender, male and female, he created them. Let's just look at that word for a moment, gender. It shares the same root as words like genesis, generate, generous, progeny, genealogy, gen. What does that Greek root mean? It means to produce, to give birth to. Gender means, until the modern world deconstructed the word, gender means the manner in which you generate new life. Mm. And there are only two ways to do that, with sperm and with eggs, male and female, right? And you need both to generate new life. Another way of saying it, to put it in biblical terms, it's male and female together that image God's life-giving love. And imaging that life-giving love as male and female is meant to orient us towards the eternal truth of the life-giving love that is the Trinity. The enemy doesn't want us to live that out, so he disorients us. He inverts the rocket engines. Christ came into the world not to condemn those with inverted rocket engines. He came into the world to redirect our rocket engines to the stars. That's called redemption. That's our faith. And, and I'll never tire of proclaiming that to, to the world. And it's a message I need to hear over and over and over again because our brokenness goes deep, but it does not go deeper than the redemptive power of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, Christopher, let me ask you this, because these are big ideas, right? And this podcast is hitting people on a Tuesday evening or a Thursday morning and they're facing some present battles, maybe battles in their own secret life. 
you know, battles with their children, with their vocation. So I want to get really practical. Yes, yes. When you talk about embodied, I'm, I'm intrigued. And in the book, you, you really um, unpack very eloquently how important it is to understand being embodied creatures yes. has everything to do with our faith. That, yes. that our spirituality, our, our thinking in the terms of faith and belief, that, we, that our body is part of our restoration. So how does that play out? Like in normal life, what, what have been the implications for you personally over time of how you actually treat your body? Yes. Morgan, I love what you say in your book on becoming a king and some of the videos I've seen where you're unpacking that book. You talk about how so much uh, wreckage comes to our lives when the power entrusted to us by God gets misused, right? When you talk about this, this call to rule that we have, well, that call to rule back in the book of Genesis is immediately related to our being made in the image and likeness of God. Yes. And so is our call to become one flesh, be fruitful and multiply. This is immediately related to our being created in the image and likeness of God. And let's just speak man to man here. I know women are, are listening in, but I, I want to give the women permission to listen to two men talking honestly and frankly about the realities here. What is the greatest power that God the Father has entrusted to us as men? It's written right in our bodies. Let's be more specific. It's written right in our genitals. There's another one of those gen words, right? Our gender is determined by the way in which we generate new life. And the manner in which we generate new life is determined by our genitals. And, and, and please, I, I want to say this with profound reverence for the mystery. When we, when we as Christians don't have a language to talk about this, it gets swept under the rug, it becomes taboo, and then it comes out in the locker room in very degrading ways. Yes. And the only context, sometimes the only frame we have for talking about this is locker room talk. I want to redeem the locker room talk. And I want to, I want to talk frankly about why, I hope I can say this without causing, you know, ruffling of feathers, but this is holy. Our, let me just quote Paul first. Paul says, those parts of our bodies that we think are less honorable, these parts of our bodies deserve all the greater honor because God himself has bestowed on these parts of the body the greater glory. It is in that biblical context that I want to talk about our bodies as men, more specifically, our power to image the love of God the Father and how this practically plays itself out in our lives. Do you know where we get the word testicles? It shares the same root as biblical words like testify, testimony, testament. What is the body of a man meant to testify to? It's meant to testify to the eternal fatherhood 
of God. Christopher, I think it's a great chance to stop and to mention this idea of not simply the depravity, but the dignity of masculinity and femininity being a man and woman made in the essence, this deep expression of humanity crafted in the likeness of God. So can you unpack a little further this idea of dignity? Help us understand how God asks a man to actively participate in this dignity, in his identity as a man. That is quite a vocation. Mm -hmm. That is quite a calling. That is quite a responsibility. When I come to understand, when I redeem all that locker room talk and I allow Christ into my heart and my mind, who himself had a male body, why did he come as a male? He came as a male because he is the perfect revelation of God the Father. Why do we call God Father? Certainly God has motherly characteristics. The scripture talks about this. But he is revealed fundamentally as Father. Why? We have to read the theology of masculinity and femininity. This is love. Not that we first loved God, but that he first loved us. Fatherhood in the created order, it is the male who gives the seed. It is the female who opens to receive the seed and conceives the new life within her. This is a sign. This is an image of something not only biological, but something theological. Fatherhood is proper to God because God initiates the whole gift. He is the giver of every good gift. He is the seed that comes forth, right? Christ himself says the word is the seed. Well, he's the word and he is the perfect revelation of the father. It's fascinating when you go back into the Old Testament that the lamb that was slaughtered, and I'm not making any of this up. It's right in scripture. The lamb that was slaughtered had to be a male and he had to have his testicles and his male member intact. Otherwise, the sacrifice was not valid. Christ is the Lamb of God, right? John the Baptist, who calls himself the friend of the bridegroom. He's the best man of the wedding, if you will. He says, behold, the Lamb of God. The incarnation had to be man born of woman because the revelation was the revelation of God the Father. Christ on the cross through his male body. And by the way, loincloths were not part of the gruesome spectacle of Roman crucifixion. Mm. What would the eyewitnesses of those three people who were crucified that day, what would the eyewitnesses, eyewitnesses have recognized about the man crucified in the middle? He's a Jew. How would they know he's a Jew? Wow. Because he's circumcised. Yes. What is circumcision? Have we ever even stopped as men to think about the biblical sign of circumcision? What is going on here? Mm. From the beginning, Adam has been hiding. Ever since original sin came into the world, he's been hiding. And what's he been hiding? The revelation of God's fatherhood in his body because shame came in there. Because he lost the ability to image that fatherhood in a pure, true way. And God says to Abraham, I want to establish a covenant with you. And here's the promise. 
offspring, offspring, offspring more numerous than the stars. The covenant is to reveal through Abraham's body the eternal fatherhood of God. Now notice, a woman is much more related to this whole covenant mystery. She bears the child within her. She sheds blood every month. Her flesh and her blood, she knows to participate in the covenant love of God, demands the shedding of blood and the giving up of flesh. It's written in her body. She bleeds every month. The man can plant his seed and say, see ya, go his merry way, right? God is saying, no, 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 come back, come back, Abraham and all your descendants. You want to be a true testimony? You want to testify to my eternal fatherhood? It's going to demand of you the sacrifice of flesh and the shedding of blood right where it hurts. Mm. This is biblical testimony, right? I'm not making this up, but we, we're too afraid even to think about it. God says to Abraham, I want to write a sign of this covenant in your flesh. And you can imagine Abraham, okay, what do you want to do? Uh, a tattoo on the shoulder, right. a bone through the nose? Like the cattle? Right, right. you're going to put a brand on me? God says, yes, here's the brand. See that sharp rock over there? Oh. Here's what I want you to do with it. I'm already why, feeling shrinkage. Why? Why the, why the removal of that flesh at the tip of a man's loins? Because this is where we've been hiding. And God's saying to Abraham, I want you to remove not only the fig leaves, I want you to remove the natural covering. Because I want your most intimate anatomy exposed. Mm. Now, what is this all a sign of? The circumcision of heart. Right? In the New Testament, we know circumcision of the flesh is not required for Christians. What's required is the circumcision of the heart. He's after the man's heart. How do you get to a man's heart? Through his loins. That's how you get to a man's heart. God's after our hearts, men. What does he want to turn our hearts into? Hearts that know how to testify to the fatherhood of God. And how do we do it? Just as Christ did it by the giving up of flesh and the shedding of blood. This is what Paul is telling men in Ephesians 5 when he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. This is a tall order, Morgan. This is a tall order. How do we, how do we live this out day to day? We have to learn as men how to die. It's so good. So good. I love that question of how does God get to a man's heart through his body? I've referenced one of my favorite Scottish proverbs many times on podcasts where it says, you speak often of my drinking, but little of my thirst. That could have been said by many a good monk brewing beer in ages past, I imagine. You know, the same is true and could be likened to sexuality. As I'm listening to you share, I'm reminded sexuality is not about sexuality. At its core, it is about what's being revealed to us about the nature of reality through sexuality. Or maybe simply stated, sex is never about sex. And I'm reminded that God will use the doorway, this doorway of sex and sexuality to get to the core heart of a man and his story. 
I think it's a great segue into some conversation on how this can play out in marriage. I think back into my, my relationship with Sherry 20 years ago when we were just starting out. Um, some of these ideas were very young in me, but um, I was passionate about restoring dignity to gender and, in your words, kind of becoming a man who is offering selflessly on yes. behalf of his wife rather than coming to take or to yes. exert power over. And when we began thinking about family planning, um, we felt the sobriety of this is God's domain, and we want to be stewarding what he has for our family. And um, how do we do this? And so we were led to create an ovulation method and uh, natural family planning in that way. And basically, for those that aren't familiar with that, it's being deeply aware of that beautiful cycle that you've articulated that's happening in my wife this regeneration every month she comes into fertility and understanding her cycle and timing our lovemaking when we sense God might be saying it's time to generate life and then knowing that if we don't sense that's our time there are times we need to abstain and so you know technically there's no birth control there's no condoms it's 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 one man and one woman and we're in the middle of it and what I found as I look back over those years is I had the privilege of becoming a student of my wife's body. Oh, praise I, had, I had to tune in yes. to her, her in an embodied nature. Yes. yes. And even beyond the body, what it we required was this rhythm of fasting, yes. right? And abstaining. And it it brought so much increase of pleasure and gratitude and dignity for when we would, you know, have, have intercourse. And then, you know, our counselor used the spice analogy. I don't know if that's common, but she said it's spiritual. She said, what you, what you want to cultivate is intimacy with your wife. And that intimacy is spiritual for us, physical, intellectual, creative, and emotional. It's not just sex, right? Sex is a metaphor back to our the beginning of our conversation. And so with this spice idea all throughout my marriage for 20 years, I've asked myself, am I cultivating a holistic approach towards intimacy? Am I cultivating yes. spiritual intimacy, creative intimacy, physical intimacy, emotional intimacy? And it really expanded my view. And so I reflect that back as that's been a very practical application of trying to recover dignity in the realm of sexuality and realizing in my marriage, there still is always a frontier. It's not an exaggeration to say that the enemy is after us right here. Mm. No coincidence, this is going to sound strange as I say it, but there's no coincidence that Ephesians chapter 6 comes after Ephesians chapter 5. But what, do I, what am I getting at? Ephesians 5 tells us the mega mystery of our sexuality, that it's all meant to testify to the love of Christ in the church. Well, what do we learn in Ephesians 6? Paul basically says, you want to live what I was just telling you about in Ephesians 5? Get ready for a war because there's an enemy. It's a spiritual battle. And there's an enemy who doesn't want you to know that and live that, doesn't want you to be a testimony to the fatherhood of God. And then he tells us how we fight this to win it. You got to put on the spiritual armor. 
And the very first piece of spiritual armor that Paul says we have to put on, I'm not making this up, is we have to gird our loins with the truth. Mm. Are our loins girded in the truth? We're going to take a transition even deeper. Just feel compelled not just to talk about these big ideas, not just to learn about these big ideas, but to put them into practice. So I want to turn in the spirit of this content to a prayer. It's a prayer we have prayed, led by John at many Awada Heart boot camps all over the world for over 23 years now. I want to turn to this prayer for sexual restoration. I want to use this moment while our hearts are present, where we are recalling our stories of sexuality, sexuality lost, and by God's grace, sexuality recovered in our hearts as men. So let's dive into this prayer together. So Jesus, we come. We come to you now. We come to you, Christ. We begin by giving ourselves back to you, Jesus. As Paul says, we have been bought with a price. We are not our own. We have been purchased with the blood of Christ. And therefore, we surrender ourselves back to you. We consecrate our lives to you, Jesus. We give you our sexuality. We give you that masculine core within us. We give you our loins, Jesus. We give you our strength and our weakness. We give you our body, our heart in all of its brokenness, our mind, our spirit. We give ourselves to you, Christ. Our will, our intellect. We surrender ourselves to you completely, Jesus. And we declare your authority over our lives. There is no one else who has a legitimate claim to us other than you. Jesus, you are our ransom. You are our sovereign. And we give ourselves to you completely and unreservedly that we might be healed, cleansed, delivered, and restored. Jesus, I ask for your healing presence to come and fill this room and to surround every man, to surround him, Lord, his spirit and his mind, to silence every other voice, for we command it in the name of Jesus that only Christ may speak. Jesus, that you would come. And the scriptures say that it is God who said, let light shine out of darkness, who has made his light to shine in our hearts. We ask you to come and shine your light in our hearts. Come into these deep places, Jesus. The places of bondage, the places of captivity. Come into our brokenness and our cynicism and our resignation. Come into our addictions and our compulsion, and our fear. Come to these places that feel so young in us, Christ. 
We give ourselves to you fully, Jesus, and we bring your work over our lives. And we want to ask your forgiveness for the ways that we have misused our sexuality. Jesus, you created it. You ordained it to be something of great glory and rich sensuality without shame. And there are few of us that know that. Jesus, would you come here to the regions of our sexuality and would you forgive us, Christ, for the way that we have misused our sexuality? We renounce it. Every act, every word, every look, every turn, every relationship. And bring our sexuality under the Lordship of Jesus Christ under his redemption and his claim, and under his promise to heal and deliver. And we just allow you to bring to us right now, to bring to our minds the things that we need to confess, Christ. We invite you to come, Jesus. We invite you to come. What is it that you are asking us to yield, to confess, to renounce? And as he brings those things to mind, you just lay them before him. Confess them, renounce them. Relationships, the abuse of your sexuality, fear, withdrawal. Jesus, search us and show us the places where the deep agreements were made that that is the place of love, that that is the place of validation, that that will be our comfort. Show us where those agreements were made, Christ. For we would renounce them, break them, and yield our brokenness back to you. Jesus, forgive us for the misuse of our sexuality. And Jesus, we ask for your blood to come now and to cleanse us of our sins, but also to cleanse us of sins that were done against us. That you would cleanse us, Jesus. Cleanse us with your blood in these very places, the memories, the emotions and desires. Cleanse us in the place of our sexual arousal. Cleanse us, Jesus, in our imaginations, in our eyes, in our ears. Lord Jesus, cleanse us, our hands, our bodies. Cleanse us with your blood, Christ. We return ourselves to you. And we renounce every way that we have misused our sexuality, that we have not rescued the beauty, we have not given our strength to her, not in a true way. Jesus, forgive us. And Jesus, we ask you to come, come to the, the broken places within us, come to the young and not so young places that are broken within us and speak to us, Christ. Jesus, what are you saying to our hearts? 
What are you speaking to these places within us? Yes. Christ is saying, I have forgiven you. I have. I forgive you. Will you let me heal you? Will you let me restore your sexuality? Will you let me restore your brokenness? Let me come to these young places within you. Let me heal and restore you. You don't need to stay there anymore. We ask you to destroy our captors, Jesus. We ask you to take your sword out against the enemy in the way that he has turned wounds and agreements into places of bondage Mm -hmm. and captivity. Break the chains, Jesus. Cut them off. Lord Jesus, break the bondage and open the cell doors. Open them, Christ. Come for the man who is buried, just buried by the enemy and held captive. Come to him, Jesus. Come to the young places in us feeling ashamed, frightened, and destroy our enemies, destroy the work of the enemy. We renounce every way that we have given him a claim in our life. Jesus, forgive us for making agreements with him. Forgive us for the agreements of the sensuality and seduction, the comfort and false love. Jesus, forgive us for making agreements with the shame and the fear and regret and remorse and a lack of forgiveness toward ourselves. We're saying things like, I could never forgive myself for that. We renounce those agreements. We renounce every way that we have aligned ourselves or our sexuality, our masculine strength with the lies of the enemy and given him claim, access to us. We ask you to destroy our captors, Jesus. That you would destroy them, break the hold. That you would heal the brokenhearted and set the captive free. Bring us out, Jesus. Bring our sexuality out of darkness and into the fields of freedom and light, cleansing, righteousness that you give to us. That you would restore us as men. Lord Jesus, come. Come for us, Christ. In our cynicism and resignation and in our unbelief. Forgive us, Christ. And just ask you to come. That you would heal us, Christ. That you would restore our own hearts to us. The broken and shattered places. That you'd collect them together into your arms. Gather the young places into your arms and gather the older places. Gather them to you, Jesus. And heal us, Christ. Bring the brokenness back in. And place pinned down, Jesus. 
We welcome your healing, Christ. We give you utter and total claim to us. We welcome our sexuality back as something holy and good. That it can be restored and that it can be free. Oh, cleanse us and restore us, Christ. Heal us, Jesus. In a sense, the Christ is offering to many places within many of us his hand. He's asking us to walk with him. Come with me. Come with me. I'm taking you out of bondage. I want to restore you. I want to heal you. I've forgiven you. I have a robe for you of righteousness. You do not need to be ashamed of what you are. I am restoring you. Let me heal you. Give me your permission. Give me your hand. And come with me. Come with me now. We pray that your cleansing, healing light would fill our hearts, Christ. That 2 Corinthians 4 light, the light of God in the face of Christ, would shine in our hearts and bring healing and restoration, Jesus. We give ourselves back to you in every way. Mend our sexuality. Mend our strength. Mend the essence within us. And Jesus, we ask you to imbue us now, to endow us with your masculine strength. Restore the essence. Restore the deep, the deep places within us. The masculine core. Help us to straighten up, Jesus, and look at you. Turn our eyes to you and fill us with your strength, Christ. Restore the essence of our masculinity, Jesus. Fill us with your grace, with your life, Jesus, and with your strength. We welcome you. We welcome you into the shattered places of our hearts, into our sexuality and into our darkness. We welcome you in, Jesus, to restore us. I sense Jesus saying to some men here, tell them this is true. Tell them this is true and that I do come, that I will heal if you will let me. I need your permission. Let go of your cynicism and your unbelief. Let go of your guilt as a kind of comforter and your sense of shame as a kind of friend. They are not your friends. And listen to me. I have created you to be a man. And you are my man. 
Jesus, bring your deep validation to our hearts. Speak to those core places, Lord. What do you think of us as men? Receive my validation. I love you. And I respect you. And I am restoring you. As a man. Look. Look what I have done. And Jesus, you have our permission to keep coming. And to keep working here. As long as you need to work into every place you need to reach, Christ, and to restore us in a wholeness and in a holiness, to cleanse and to deliver and to heal. In your name. Amen. Friends, take a deep breath. Take a deep breath. These are deep, deep waters in the masculine soul. These are brave myomarkers in masculine initiation. If you made it this far, you are among the few. Well done. Well done. My invitation is to revisit this. Revisit this content. Revisit this prayer. Keep taking fresh passes at this deep and sacred work. Your body is telling God's story. There's more freedom, more healing than you have ever been led to believe by day and by decade. You can have your integrity back. If you want to dive deeper in this topic, I encourage you to pick up a copy of Christopher West's Our Body is Telling God's Story. And now as always, let's pause in the pace, in the going, in the doing, let's pause for 45 seconds simply to immerse ourselves in the kindness of God, to breathe, to practice his presence, to rest, to receive love. And we'll see you again on another episode of the Become Good Soil podcast. Let's pause.